We're down in the home stretch, an hour and a half to go. Lots more to talk about. Um, any comment or question before we press on with this, with this developmental model? Are you seeing the relevance of this model for working with people? I hope that um, by the end of the day, you'll realize that taking this developmental view will, will assist you greatly in understanding where people are struggling. Um, whether they're struggling with needing to be more connected with God or with others, whether they're needing to let go of a relationship in their life. Um, either thing can be equally tr- challenging depending on where the growth plate is, where the, where the need for transition or growth is. The irony is that as we mature, it's like going up a mountainside and that what works very well for a little while, if we're going to keep making progress, we have to do a switchback and go the other direction. Um, and so that's why being a parent is so helpful because we learn how to connect with our kids and then we learn how to let go. We learn how to connect, we learn how to let go. And so in, in working with clients, when working with other people, you need that sense of freedom to shift the posture that you take in relationship to those you're working with depending on their need. Not depending on what's comfortable for you or what's easy for you or what's natural for you, but, but depending on what the need. To be able to love like God loves depends on being able to um, realize what is needed and to give that in a generous way. Um, on one of our other Saturdays, we're going to look at the parable of the lost things in, in Luke chapter 13, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, and the older brother. And I think you'll be amazed at how that parable gives us some really great clues in how the kingdom of heaven um, relates to those who are lost in various ways. It's a pretty cool um, thing that I think you'll enjoy. But for today, let's go ahead and finish out, and, and this is sort of a brief overview of this model, but let's finish this out, and then I'm going to make some specific applications to counseling before we end our time together. Okay, so we said that if, uh, if all goes well, a child has a secure base through bonding or connecting. There's a strong attachment that's forged in the bonding process. That provides a secure base or a launching pad whereby the child can begin to explore, to, to grow, to launch out, to try new things, to be adventurous and courageous, to separate. And even in the face of that, then to be able to come back to uh, get reassurance or, or soothing when necessary. But then when mom is not there, the child has learned to soothe him or herself, to take responsibility for their own emotional state. Um, the, the scripture is very clear that your heart ultimately is, belongs to God. And when we let the circumstances of our life or the people in our life control our emotions, we are letting them be God for us, um, which is something that, that we want to help people to get to the place where they're not dependent on some external source of comfort that they, they internalize that sense that God is loving, God is ever-present. And, and, and by being there in the room with them, by being still and calm, you give them that experience of God's presence, even when he doesn't intervene in the way we wish he would, which is, which is a hard thing to learn. There's something called object constancy, which children learn at this age. And they, what they learn is that even if mom is angry and punishing, she is still the same loving one who gives me the cookie, who feeds me dinner, who tucks me in at night. And so our view of God has to incorporate those moments when we feel that God is far off. As the psalmist says, God, why do you stand so far off? Why do the wicked prosper and my teeth are in the gravel? You know, when God does not intervene, engage with us like we expect a loving father to, how do we maintain a, a, a positive view of God and of ourselves in the midst of that pain. That's so much of what happens here in this stage. If that goes well, then the child comes to that place of acceptance where the clenched fist of of self-will gives way to an open hand of acceptance and teachability. The third beatitude says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness has to do with being open to direction, has to be submissive, has to do with being gentle. Um, Jesus says, I am meek and lowly in heart. Um, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. The, the, the stress of the toddlerhood years um, is replaced by a certain amount of rest and relief as a child moves into the years between 3 and 12. Um, typically at that point, if all is going well, the child is very receptive to the parent's direction. Um, their, their self-will begins to be replaced by curiosity. 
And um, there's a question that you hear a lot from three-year-olds. Um, it's a one-word question that you hear. What is it? Why? And in this stage of development, the child becomes very curious. And you hear that question a lot. I remember when my kids were little and I'd say, you know, go put your shoes on. Why? Well, we're going to go to the store. Why? Well, we need to buy some groceries. Why? Well, we need to eat. Why? Because God made us that way. Why? I don't know. Put your shoes on. Let's go. (laughs) You know, it's exhausting, right? But a healthy parent, a good parent, is very patient and gives a lot of answers. Now, there are some questions that we can't answer. But a healthy parent will answer as many of the questions as they're capable of answering so that in those moments when there is no answer that makes sense to the child or no answer that the parent can give, that's when the child can still um, respond to direction based on trust. Not based on understanding, based on trust. Um, In the counseling process, what you want is to engage that curiosity in the person you're working with so that they really do question, I wonder why that's my earliest memory. I wonder why I keep picking the same kind of guy to be in a relationship with. I wonder why it's so hard for me when my child is upset with me. That they become curious and ask these questions that allow you to begin to bridge the gaps in understanding, to bridge the gaps in terms of their behavior and inviting them to take a different view, to take a different course of action that will allow them a new possibility. The word that Jesus uses in the third beatitude is a Greek word, um, preutes, which um, is a word that's used to, uh, to, to talk about a horse that has been gentled, a horse that's been broken. And so um, the idea is that that horse becomes receptive and responsive to the rider. Um, another, another translation of that word is power under control. Two-year-olds have a lot of power sometimes. They can wail, they can stomp, they can tantrum. But, but it's, it's power that does not serve them well. Um, it's only when they come to that place of acceptance and, and be, begin to learn yielding that that power can be harnessed and brought under control. As a matter of fact, by yielding to direction, we are able to do things which we otherwise would find impossible. A good coach can draw strength, endurance, performance out of of an athlete that without that relationship would be impossible. And a good parent helps a child to do things that otherwise they would be incapable of doing by by enforcing discipline, by giving correction, by giving affirmation, encouragement, by providing a structure of rewards and punishments that help the child to make good choices. Um, Anybody ever see the steeplechase and the Olympics? Um, It's a really cool event. It's an equestrian event in which um, a, a, there's a, just a phenomenal obstacle course that the horse has to traverse um, with a rider. Well, horses, if you know anything about them, um, will not jump a solid barrier. They're, they're not the most brilliant animal, but they're smart enough to know that there could be a cliff on the other side of that wall or a lake or whatever, bramble bush. So they're not going to go over a solid wall. If they can't see what's on the other side, they ain't going there, right? Can you relate? If I don't see what's on the other side of the, you know, the next turn, I'm not going there. But, but in, this, in this event, the horse is able to do what otherwise would be impossible or unthinkable because of a relationship with a rider, a relationship of trust. And the, the secret is that the rider gets to walk the course in advance. The rider knows what's on the other side. And so the rider can signal to the horse when, how far, how high to jump because the, the rider knows What's on the other side? And because of the relationship of trust, the horse can do what otherwise would be unthinkable or impossible. Children who trust their parents can accomplish things that otherwise would be impossible. When we engage with God in a meek and teachable and yielded way, we can do things which otherwise would be completely impossible or unthinkable. Isn't that cool? So that power under control is what happens when you've engaged a bond, a connection with the person you're working with, and allowed them to release their pain, to confess what's true for them, and they become, get that place where they're willing to do some course correction, then you will be so thrilled that they'll come back and go, I can't believe it. I talked to my boss, and just what you said would happen, happened. I never, I never thought I could do that. Or I stood up to my mother for the first time ever. 
and I didn't die, you know. Um, so many cool things happen when you establish a relationship of trust where that person is willing to step into the uncertainty of the future without knowing what's on the other side of the wall, but being willing to do it because they're tired of being this side of the wall. They're tired of being limited in life by early, um, li- by early defenses or mechanisms. Okay, so um, yielding is where course correction happens, where we get to do our most fun job, I think, as counselors, because we get to give them some answers. We get to give them some tools. We get to encourage them to take some steps that will bless them greatly. And it's so fun to have them come back and go, you never, you never know what, you'll never believe what happened. I got home and I had a message from my aunt that I hadn't talked to in 12 years. The one, you know, the one that I, I was so angry with that we, you know, I told you I forgave her last week. She called me. Isn't that great? If you think about a child at this stage, they take great delight in their growth. And they're like, look at me. You know, they come home, you know, wanting to do, say their ABCs or count to 10 or jump off the high board. Um, if, if things go well in counseling, there's whole new vistas that open up to people. And there's a great enthusiasm they have in growing and engaging those new possibilities. It's a, it's a great thing. Well, if that goes well, then there's a, um, an ability to accommodate, to um, change their way of being, their way of thinking, their attitudes, their behaviors, to be more in line with God's truth and with the possibilities that exist for them. Um, if, uh, if, that go, if that doesn't go well, and, and typically what keeps people from moving into this yielding phase is that they don't have good parenting that is consistent and loving and calm. If a child grows up in a home where the rules are very arbitrary or very inconsistent or clearly based on the parent's good and not the child's good, the child does not have the opportunity to really trust the parent. And so the child can get stuck in rebellion or what we might call pushing against authority, pushing against the limits because they don't trust enough to let somebody else take the lead. And so those, those children who grow up in abusive environments or hostile environments or um, with parents who are very self-centered and self-serving or who f- refuse to answer the why questions, um, the child figures they've just got to do it on, the, on, on their own. They've just got to make it happen themselves. And these, these people get stuck in this stage, can be very confident and competent, but when it comes to being a part of a team, they're at serious disadvantage because they don't know how to submit. They don't know how to yield. They don't know how to be teachable. Um, If this goes well, though, um, a child who eats the bread of instruction and responds to authority actually begins to internalize the values that support the rules. By asking the why questions, the child begins to learn that there's a reason why they have to go to bed at a certain time. There's a reason why they need to keep their room clean. There's a reason why they have to brush their teeth or wear deodorant or, you know, all the things that go along with growing up. And the child begins to internalize the values. Um, the, the word that we have on your, on your handout for this fourth stage is assimilation. Assimilation is a physiological term that uh, means to take something that's external and make it internal. Of course, when you assimilate into a culture, you can come from another country and assimilate and take on the values and the culture that you become a part of. Physiologically, it means what happens when you ate your lunch today and you chew up your food, you swallow it, your body processes it, and what was external, what was a pig or a turkey or a cow, um, now becomes a part of you. Isn't that cool? So um, what was a cow in the field is now part of me. You know, I mean, isn't that great? Well, what we hope is that our children internalize the values that we have as parents so that they don't depend on us to tell them what to do in every situation, but they know instinctively what to do. Is it enough for your children just to be, become uh, responsive to authority and try to do what God tells them to do or what you tell them to do or their teachers tell them to do? No. There are moments when your child needs to be so infused with value, with um, courage and strength and integrity and love that they don't have to ask anybody what the right thing to do is. It comes from inside them. And a healthy child moving from yielding to pursuit is identifying with the parent of the same sex, identify with the parent of the same sex so that they, they want to be like mom and dad. They want to have the strengths that they see in mom and dad. Where here they're following the rules 
Down here, they're following the person. And the transition from childhood to adulthood is a transition from external to internal. The parents provide a scaffolding or an external structure that supports the child growing up. But as they grow up, a healthy parent starts to remove the external constraints and depend on the internal supports to guide the child in making good decisions. And the healthy parent lets the child make some mistakes while they're still at home, while the risk is not as high, whereas an unhealthy parent will keep rigid structures in place until the child leaves home and they are totally uh, at loose ends. They're in a, they're a bad place because they haven't had a chance to make some mistakes on their own. And so the mistakes they make when they go off to college are really, really scary mistakes and potentially very damaging. So the healthy parent um, helps, the, helps the child at this stage by giving them lots of structure and rules to support them and then by gradually removing those so that, the, so that what has been external can become internal. What you want for your adult children is for them to be able to say yes to life, to be chomping at the bit to get a job, to buy their own clothes, to learn to drive a car, to um, date, to do all the things that go along with being an adult because they want to be like you. They want to be healthy, productive, contributing members of society. And if all goes well, they will be able to say yes to life. Unfortunately, some of us are afraid to launch our children. Some of our children are afraid to take responsibility for their lives. And we get stuck in yielding. We get stuck in pleasing, in trying to play it safe, in playing not to lose. We don't want it to become risk-averse because the idea of failing becomes uh, too intolerable. We're afraid to disappoint our parents. We're afraid to, afraid to fail. And so we s- slip back into this more comfortable area where somebody else is responsible if things go badly. Um, I remember I had this grew up in a very legal, legalistic environment, and this was so strong in me. I wanted to please everybody. And if you asked me where I wanted to go to eat, I would say, I don't care. You pick. Because if the service was bad or the food was bad or whatever, if you chose, hey, it's not my fault. You know, isn't that great? If you let somebody else call the shots and if it goes badly, it's their fault. You don't have to feel responsible. But if we have healthy children, we want to encourage them to know their own hearts so if they come to us and say, well, where should I go to college? Or who should I date? Or what should I wear this morning? Or what should I study in college? A healthy parent will not give the child the answer. At that point, the healthy parent says, well, I don't know. Let's talk about it. What do you think? How do you feel? What do you see? Um, and a healthy parent sh- helps the child uh, identify with not only the values of the parent, but identify with their own core values, their own core beliefs, their own deep needs and desires and help them to engage life in a powerful way with, with pursuit and promise, with, with a very a, a strong sense of purpose. And that's what this, this final thing is about. As a counselor, your ultimate goal is to you know, push the eaglet out of the nest, to encourage the person that they have everything they need to be a, a success. And that if they fail, that's okay too, because trying is what it's all about. Putting yourself out there, taking risks, honors God because it demonstrates a life of faith when we take risks. Even if we fall flat, it's okay. We identify with Jesus who learned obedience to the things that he suffered. Did Jesus fail in his ministry? Sure looked like it. At the end of three years of ministry, everybody deserted him, and the people that he healed and fed are calling for him to be crucified. They're spitting on him. They're hitting him. They're cursing him. Was he a failure? In that moment, Jesus totally bombed. He felt horrible. And even God abandoned him in that moment. But Jesus knew that he could not do anything but stay where he was. That he had really, he was so committed to identifying with his father and his father's will and identifying with his decision to give himself fully and completely to the task that God had put before him, that he hung there on the cross, enduring the, sh- the suffering and the shame for the joy set before him. That's what we want for our kids. That's what we want for the people that we, that we counsel, that they will be willing to take a stand for their life, that they will endure whatever is ahead, whatever uncertainty, whatever pain, with the promise that if they are true to their core, God will be pleased. 
Isn't that great? The result may not be everything we expect it to be, but we can find pleasure in doing right. The beatitude that goes with this says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. If you're hungry for other people's approval, sometimes you're going to be hungry. If you're hungry for affection from your mate, sometimes you're going to be hungry. If you're hungry for physical food or for finances, if you're hungry for fame or a lot of other things, you may go hungry. It's not guaranteed. But Jesus says, if your hunger, if your deepest drive and desire is to do what God asks, there's always a banquet. There is always a choice that you can make that will honor God. Will it get the result that you want? Not necessarily. But the result we want is the confidence at the end of the day that we will hear from from our Father. Well done, good and faithful servant. Because if we live a life of integrity, if we follow our convictions, and if we encourage those that we come in contact with to step into the uncertainty and the unknown, to risk failure in order to be true to what I believe God is calling me to be, it's all good. Even if the cross is, is the end of this life, it is never the end of the story. Um, anybody have a comment or a question about this paradigm, about this little uh, diagram? Okay, well, what I want to do is make some quick connections with counseling. Yes, yeah, here's a, come up and, um, would you, we're, we're recording, so let me get you to talk on the. In the event that a child misses the yielding stage of why, uh-huh. and there's just not a lot of questions of why, right. then what usually transpires? Yeah, if the person doesn't, doesn't get yielding, they tend to, to revert back to, um, being like rebellious, pushing, um, they can kind of they can if they if they don't get um, good structure, then tend, they tend to try to figure things out on their own. Uh, so what I'm, what I'm trying to ask is why if they don't ask why, they're just so not curious. They okay, just so don't... they just they just do what's asked of them and without any exactly. Curiosity. They're yeah. Very... What happens with those people is they probably did not get very much empowerment in the releasing stage. So they, they never, maybe never felt the uh, freedom or the strength to say no. And you can have people who have, have uh, deficits at every level. If there's not a secure base, then they're not going to be good at assert, assertion or, or asserting their, their will. If they're not good at asserting their will, they're not going to be very good at asking why. If they're not very good at asking why, it's going to be hard for them to say yes to life because they're, they're, they live in a very, um, very tenuous sense of self. They don't have a real strong sense of who they are or what they want, where they're going or what they need. You said release them in that stage to acknowledge that something is theirs. Can you give an example of like what that something that's... Cool. Um, in, the counseling, in the counseling room, what you want to, what you want to um, impart to the person is their story is their story. Their pain is their pain. Their relationships are, are theirs, and by, by being with them and acknowledging their pain and their story and the possibilities, you're, you're really basically um, trying to impart to them the idea that, that whatever your story has been, whatever your pain has been, that God is in it for good. And um, the, 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 the main thing that you want kid people to, to know, and your children or the people you work with, is that your heart is your own. You may have been robbed of your innocence as a child. You may have been beaten up and beaten down. You may have been cast aside. You may have been abandoned. But at the end of the day, your heart belongs to you and to the God that made you. And you can reclaim it as a place of peace. It may have been invaded early on at a time when you had no say in it. But now as an adult, if you're willing to go back to that point where you're given the message that Somebody else's need was more important than your need. Somebody else's agenda was more important than your agenda. You can take it back. Like a healthy child, you can say, this is mine. You know, I may not get the cookie, but I got my blankie. I, you know, this is, I can control this. My behavior, my attitude is something that no one can take from me. Uh, there's a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Anybody ever read it by Viktor Frankl? It's considered to be one of the greatest books ever written, and I kind of agree with him. But this, this man, Viktor Frankl, um, 
found himself in a concentration camp in Nazi, Nazi Germany. And he found that there, the ultimate freedom was the freedom to hold on to your dignity and your attitude in the face of the most uh, profound deprivation and the most horrific evil. That even in that culture, even in the concentration camp, people would either be overwhelmed by the evil around them and, and begin to act like animals, or they would transcend the evil around them and continue to relate to themselves and others with dignity and grace. That the capacity to love and be loved is something that no one can take from you. Even in the most desperate of situation, even if they kill you, they cannot take away your freedom to do right, to do what God asks you to do. And that's why Jesus says, if your deep desire is, to, is for righteousness, you'll be satisfied. Um, we're going to talk about the other Beatitudes uh, just briefly. But um, the second one uh, says to be pure in heart is, is uh, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And there's a, uh, there's a book by Soren Kierkegaard called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Um, Soren Kierkegaard was a German theologian, brilliant guy, um, had a lot to offer in terms of his perspective. But as I thought about that concept, to be pure in heart is to will one thing. Um, at the end of the day, if what we want is for God's will to be done in us and through us, then if, if the will of God is my one thing, then I can rest assured that I will get what I want. Isn't that right? Isn't true? At the end of the day, is God going to have his way? Yeah. With you or without you, God is going to have his way. No matter how stubborn and hard-hearted you are, no matter how much you drag your heels, God is going to have his way in the grand scheme. You get to choose whether he has his way in your heart. As much power as God has, what is yours, your heart, is something that you get to choose, whether to keep it for yourself, whether to let it be ravaged by others, or whether to entrust it into the hands of a loving God. To be able to say, as Jesus did, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That I recognize what's mine. And, and, and being yielded is not just saying, oh, whatever you want. God, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus did not say, oh, sure, God, whatever you want is fine with me. You just tell me what. He's like, no, I do not like what I see coming. I don't like what you're asking of me. In fact, I will do anything but please give me another option. There wasn't another option. At the end of the day, Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Being yielded means claiming my own will, my own assertion, my own power, but being willing to surrender it for the sake of love, for the sake of trust and truth. Okay, um, we have right at an hour left. Um, are you all okay to go a little further without a break? Okay, good. If you, need to, if you just need to get up for some reason, please do. Okay, I want to draw your attention to these pages that are sideways in your, in your book. You may want to either turn your notebook sideways or uh, unclip them. And they follow this paradigm, this developmental structure. And we're not going to have time to dwell on them, but I think if you'll spend some time with them on your own, um, this, this model that we're presenting today will begin to make sense for you um, in relating to people and their spiritual journey. So let's look at the first one, bonding. We said his bonding is foundational. It's the, it's the primary task of a child coming into the world. It's our primary task with God is to connect with him. And it's the primary thing that you want to accomplish when you meet with someone. You want to connect with them. So the beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, happy are those who admit need for something beyond self because you'll find the power of relationship. What a great thing it is when we come to the place where we admit we need help. The struggle for most of us in admitting our need is pride. We like to think that we can do it on our own. We don't like to be needy. We don't like to feel helpless. And so pride often will stand in the way of relationship and community. The other struggle we have is shame. Many of us feel so inadequate, so bad about things that happen to us that we don't want to connect with anyone else because we're afraid that they'll find the truth and reject us that they won't be willing to embrace us in our, depra- in our depravity. The struggle is our re- resignation, our sense of alienation or despair. And someone who has significant bonding issues, um, when they're in pain, they, their tendency is to withdraw, to remove themselves from relationship. 
But Jesus in this beatitude invites us to press into relationship, especially when we, when we come up against our need and our poverty. A lack of hope can be a thing that keeps people from reaching out to you. They feel, oh, what good will it do? It's not worth it. Um, that what we, what the, the client needs is a, a willingness to admit their need, their powerlessness, to name it and identify the problem. Um, that, there's a little thing, CC there. That stands for chief complaint. And in medical school, one of the things we learned to do when interviewing a patient was up front ask them to put in one or two sentences to say why they're there. Because it, the more clear the person that you're meeting with is about their chief complaint, the thing that they most want, the more likely you are to get there. If you don't ask people to do that, they will go all over the place. Sometimes spend the whole hour before they get to what's really troubling them. So the first thing you want to do is say, what are you here? What do you need? What do you want? Try to get them to verbalize the need, to name it, identify the problem. It's the first step. The shift is to see weakness and need as God's provision for relationship. I think people are lucky when they need a shrink because they get to meet me, right? No? Isn't that good? <laughs> they, who, why else would they go see a loony shrink? Um, they, you know, they have that deep sense of need. And, and that's where the power is. It's in relationship. We get to be the ministers of God's grace as counselors. So bonding versus isolation. The companion beatitude is blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. A mother reaching out to her baby in need is the embodiment of mercy. She is all-embracing, all-accepting, all-loving, all-forgiving. She is the perfect symbol or, or um, perfect manifestation, embodiment of God's grace. In other words, happy are you when you reach out in response to the need of another. Your own needs will be met as well. The cool thing is that God's, God's love is like the ocean. And we are like a thimble, right? And you try to pour God's love into us and we can't hold very much. But if you set your heart towards sharing the love of God and you open up the outflow and you let God's love flow through you to the people around you, guess what? You get more. The more you let out, the more comes in. And so when Jesus is blessed with the merciful, they will obtain mercy. The more you set your heart to be a manifestation of God's grace, the more you get from him. The more that flows out through you, the more that flows to you. It's the greatest thing. So your struggle as a, a, as a um, counselor is judgment or apathy. It is tempting at times when somebody shares something with you to, to resort to judgment, to be judgmental toward the person that hurt them or toward, judgmental toward their own response. If somebody is sniveling and in their self-pity, it's, it's tempting to judge them. If somebody is puffed up in their arrogance and pride, it's tempting to judge them. We have to resist like heck our tendency to judge if we are going to forge a connection with people. Some people are easy to love. Other people, not so much. Right? Yeah, isn't that true? Especially if they're a lot like you. You know? Like, I hate this person. They're just like me. No, um, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes we just find it hard to love people. And yet, if we can't posture ourselves toward compassion, toward a person we're meeting with, you might as well forget it. And there, will be, there may be those times when you'll meet with someone and you'll think, I can't help this person because I don't like them. Right? If you, don't, if you cannot find some warm feelings for the person in front of you, you are not going to be able to do them much good. So you might as well just say, you know what? This is not the kind of problem that I think I can help you with, but I'd be happy to get you connected with somebody I think who can. Right? If you've, had, uh, if you've been married to an abusive husband and you're sitting with someone who's abusive, it's going to be hard for you to to love that person. If, you've had, uh, if you had a sister who was, um, who was a, a cocaine abuser and you know, stole from your parents, whatever, it may be hard for you to really be compassionate toward a cocaine abuser when you're sitting with them. Um, so be aware of your own bias, your own judgments. And if you can't overcome them, don't try to take somebody, don't try to, to act like it's safe when it's not because judgment kills. Mercy brings life. So um, inadequate mirroring, it's important for us not to make a problem seem too big or too small. We've got to take our cue uh, from the person. We can, we can expand on it some, but you don't want it to go too far ahead of them. In the mirroring stage, you want to kind of go with where they are. Um, if a person is just overwhelmed with guilt because they stole a pencil from work, you know, 
Okay, you might be tempted to go, is that all you got? <laughs> I mean, really, come on, you know. Um, but but if, 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 God, if they're dealing with some grief about that, go with them there. Try to find out what's behind that grief. Um, don't minimize it. On the other hand, if they say that they, you know, they, it comes out that there was incest between them and their sibling, you don't want to go, oh, my gosh. That is, oh, 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 just a minute. <laughs> you, you know, you want to be able to, to be with them, to, um, be, to be calm, to show a caring connection, to be attuned to their, their situation, to show acceptance, empathy, warmth, and forgiveness, to believe that God is at work in everything for good. Whatever presents itself is just what we need to move ahead. Whatever comes up in the, in the therapy session in the counseling session, is perfect. If you can adopt that attitude, you can be fearless. You can go like, I don't know what we're going to do with this, but I know it's exactly what we need. This circumstance is the perfect place for God to have his way. Verse at the bottom, God is close to the brokenhearted. We mentioned that. Let's go on to releasing. Any comment about the bonding? Um, For some of you, that's a piece of cake. It's easy for you to connect with people. This next one, Maybe a little more challenging. In releasing, we have to establish emotional separateness from those that we're serving. Um, the beatitude for the client is, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Our job is to create a safe environment where they can bring it all out. They can open up the, the pain and clean out the wound, get all the pus out. Um, as stinky and gross it is, as it is, we want to create a structure where they feel free to do that. Um, happy are you who are willing to feel and express grief. It will bring relief and release. You've got to believe that. If you don't believe that there is power in, in getting to the pain, you're going to resist it because you'll be uncomfortable. If you really trust God, you can go there. The struggle for your, the person you're working with is fear. They're afraid to confess what's true for them. They're afraid that you will see them as unloving, unlovely or unworthy of love that you may, be, you may be tempted to reject them, or that you'll be overwhelmed by um, the feelings that they're having. Um, they may be afraid that they will be punished if they um, say what's true for them. There, there's a lot of embarrassment that people struggle with when you meet with them. And helping them to overcome embarrassment is a really, uh, is a really big thing. And some self-disclosure is in order at times to let them know some of your own um, struggles. Um, but the skill that for the, the, therap- the client is to be able to release their hold on grief and to release their, um, their structures for controlling pain, to acknowledge um, the, that there is a gap in their experience. Um, by, the Bible says godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life. Um, there's a little handout um, in, your, in your book uh, called Pain in Relationship for Better or Worse. And we, we're not going to dwell on it. But the idea of that handout is that, that if we try to handle our pain on our own, if we uh, figure out how to maneuver ourselves where we can avoid pain, then the, the net result is that our relationships become more and more impoverished and we end up with the p- same pain that we are trying to avoid, to avoid. That taking pain away from relationship will lead to death. Bringing pain into relationship where we repent, where we confess, where we seek healing is what, is what uh, allows life to result. So um, we want to teach people to, to relate to pain as a signal that invites us to move toward it and not away from it. Uh, when I used to work in the emergency room, if a, if a person came into the emergency room and they had abdominal pain, the last thing you want to do is to give them morphine or some narcotic to get, get rid of the pain. Because the pain is your ally in figuring out what's going on. Is it appendicitis? Is it a ruptured ovary? Is it an ectopic pregnancy? Is it gallbladder? Um, is it gas? You know, what is, what's going on here? Is it something terribly serious and life-threatening? Or is it something that's really not to be worried about? But until we know, until we go there, we don't want to medicate it. And ironically, when you're working in the emergency room, the first thing you do is press on the pain. And they're like, oh, no, don't touch me there. Like, I got to touch you there. That's the only way we're going to figure out what's going on. And you've got to be fearless about going there and touching on the pain, giving people the message that pain is not the enemy. Avoidance of pain is what kills. 
Okay, so um, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For you as a, as a counselor, you have got to have your motives purified. And there's a, a handout in there that goes along with some stuff in, your, in the book. If you've got the, uh, the uh, Christian counseling book, um, there's a handout that sa- in, your, in your notebook that says um, uh, mixed motives of the counselor, I think it's entitled. But people have a lot of motives for being a counselor. And part of it is um, healthy and part of it is unhealthy. But if you're really going to be helpful for people, you've got to have your motives purified. If you're wanting to feel good and you're trying to get your sense of worth out of rescuing or helping other people, you are in for a world of trouble because you're going to end up doing things that will not help the people you're working with and that will, will be bad for you. Another way of, of uh, wording that beatitude is, happy are you who do not play God trying to fix another, then you will see God be God. If you want to see God show up, don't try to be God. Our struggle um, is our own fear. We're, we're afraid of not knowing what to do or say or what might be revealed in the other person or in ourself in the counseling situation. Because we're meeting with people often stirs up our own inadequacies, our own insecurities, our own fears, our own anger, our own resentments, our own unresolved stuff. But we can't be afraid. We have to be willing to be calm, knowing that God will give us what we need. Our struggle is, is often to gratify the person, to give them what they're asking for in terms of relief, rather than holding steady so they can get what they really need, which is healing. Um, we may also struggle with a sense of disdain um, and not be willing to, to be there with them. We may jump in too quickly. The skill we learn here is, called, is what I call caring detachment. Caring connection, caring attachment in the first stage is pretty easy compared to this. Caring detachment means that you care about the person, but that you are not going to engage with them because you realize that you cannot do the work for them. Um, if you imagine a mother fixing supper, and the kid, is say, the kid comes, Mommy, I want a cookie. No, you can't have a cookie. Um, the kid ramps it up. Mommy, I want a cookie. No, you can't have a cookie. The kid gets into their grief and throws a big temper tantrum. The best thing the mother can do at that point is keep fixing dinner. Let the kid go there and have their grief. Um, that caring detachment is what allows the child to calm him or herself. And um, some people do everything they can to make you responsible for fixing it, for making it better. And you've got to resist that urge because if you fix it, they don't have to find God. If you fix it, you get to be the Savior, and that feels good in the moment. But let me tell you, the Savior goes to the cross. (laughs) Right? It ain't going to end pretty. So you don't want to be the Savior. Jesus did that for us. Um, Caring detachment, being a calm present, being able to contain those negative feelings without getting anxious yourself. Having good boundaries. Um, Carrie mentioned this earlier when she was talking. You don't want to, you know, reach over and hug the person. In fact, um, you want to be very respectful of their space when they're dealing with grief. Um, If someone starts crying, for instance, I don't automatically hand them a tissue, but I make sure that the tissues are within their reach. It's totally up to them if they want to grab a tissue. But I, I just make it available without supposing that I know what they need. And so many mothers struggle with, with, with rushing in because they feel like they know what their child needs, but they do a terrible disservice because they keep the child from taking responsibility for their own calm, for their own presence, uh, uh, for their own peace. Okay, um, sobriety, that word just means that we, um, that we maintain a caring, calm, and sober countenance Um, It's very important, especially early on, that you watch your movement. If someone is divulging something that's very sensitive, I almost always will get very still, try to get very calm, and make almost no movement, and, um, and show very little response in my facial expression. And here's why. People who are sharing something that's very sensitive for them will overinterpret your actions. If you so much as glance at your watch or shift in your seat, they may interpret that as discomfort and back off from what they're sharing with you. If you shake your head or nod your head or tear up or whatever, they may see that as some sign that you're not comfortable with what they're saying. So you just got to be very sober, very careful about being still. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. 
And if you want God to show up for them, you've got to be very calm and very still. Invite them. You can, you can make verbal um, responses that encourage them to say, oh, wow, really, I'm so sorry. But not a lot of grimacing, not a lot of, you know, you don't want to be smiling when somebody's telling something horrific, but you don't want to be scowling either. You want to be very restrained so that they have the freedom and the safety to get it all out and, and free to go. Wow, thank you for sharing that with me. I feel so honored that you would share that part of your experience with me. Okay, um, calm presence, boundary, sobriety, waiting on God, letting your motives be purified, and to probe for pain. Let it go deeper. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are members of one body. Speaking the truth in love is all about what confession calls for in us and those that we work with. Okay, any comment or question about um, that second thing has to do with releasing and um, confession? Okay, let's press on then. Um, yielding. When you have created a safety, um, a safe connection and a, a context where people are able to confess what's true for them, as they come to a place of calm, then they're ready for you to engage with them. They're ready for some new way of thinking about it. And so at that point, once a person has told their story, you might say something like, wow, you know, as I listen to you tell your story, I know you felt like you were so weak in that moment. But when I look at you, I see someone who is truly strong. You amaze me in what you've been through and how you've been able to overcome the pain in your life. That amazes me. And they're like, really? You see me as strong because I always thought I was weak because I couldn't stop the abuse or I couldn't say no to my mother or whatever. And you go, no, no. It looks like to me that you, are, you have a great strength. Well, that, that may be a totally new thing for them. But if they've been able to get it out, get the pain out, they may be ready to hear something different like, really? You know, or that maybe they blamed themselves for being abused. And you're able to go, wow, can you imagine if your eight-year-old went through what you went through at eight years old? Do you think you would blame them for that? They're like, no. Like, isn't it curious that you've blamed yourself? And they're like, oh my gosh. It's interesting that often people will come to you at a time when they're, if they have children, when their oldest child or their oldest child of the same sex is the age that they were when they went through some trauma. It has happened hundreds of times for me. It's just amazing to me. Like somebody will show up and they're having a struggle in the relationship. Maybe they're ready to walk out the door because the relationship and the marriage is so hostile or whatever. And I'll ask them about their kids and it turns out that their kids, you know, they have an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. And I'll go, now your parents divorced, is that right? And they go, yeah. Yeah, my dad walked out when I was eight years old. And I go, hmm, wow. Isn't that interesting that you're being tempted to walk out of your child's life at the same age you were when your dad walked out on you. Oh, my gosh. They, you know, a lot of times what is so obvious from the outside is completely invisible from the inside. But it's, it's really quite an amazing thing. But allowing a, a people to take a different view is what meekness is all about. Happy are you who yield to direction. You will gain power, skill, and character. Um, the, the struggle for your client at this point is their own anger at what's happened to them their resentment, their self-will, the judgments that they have formed against themselves and others. What you want to help them is to adopt curiosity, to ask the why questions, to defer judgment on themselves, on others, to defer judgment even on God, to believe that God was at work even before we knew Him, to orchestrate circumstances to bless us even though they brought us great pain, to defer gratification, a healthy parent uh, dealing with a, this yielding stage helps the, ch- the child learn to eat their vegetables first. Um, eat, you know, to do the hard thing first, knowing that the easier thing will be more enjoyable once you get the hard thing out of the way. To defer their own will. Um, we all struggle with self-will. And a lot of us believe that we can, we can just do it if we get enough willpower, if we set our heart to it. But what I've learned in working with people is that that what we need is not will, willfulness or willpower. We need willingness. We need to be willing to put our lives in God's uh, care, to be willing to put ourselves on His time to be willing to try new things. Not that we are assured that we can do it, but that we are willing 
to submit and surrender, to follow directions, to trust even when we can't see what's on the other side of the barrier, what's around the corner, what's the next stage in the journey, to trust God enough to yield. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. As a therapist, you get to make peace. You get to help restore peace to people's hearts, to make connections between things that seem confusing or at odds. Happy are you who give of yourself to make peace. It will be evident that you belong to God. The struggle for us sometimes is a lack of clarity and insight. We really don't know what to say to these people. We don't have the big picture. Um, We don't know how to help them. But just being able to offer an observation, to ask a question that might lead to that insight on the part of of the person. Ironically, it's so much better if they have the aha moment than if you do. Now, you're going to feel more brilliant if you get to be the one to go, oh my gosh, look at this. Look how this connects with that. You know, that feels good. But it's so much more powerful if they're talking and they suddenly go, oh my word, I never saw that before. Like Carrie was saying, that the way I relate to my husband is the same way that I relate to my mom or, you know, whatever. Um, For them to make those connections is so cool. But your presence is what helps that to happen. Um, there's a struggle with a lack of direction and follow-through. Some of you will give homework for people or um, you'll, you'll follow rabbit trails and you'll, you'll fail to get back to the main thing. And so um, you want to keep reminding yourself of what the main thing is. And that has to be their priority and not yours. The rules have to be about them and not about you. You may see some possibility for them that is glorious. But if they're only wanting this, that's all you can give them. When people came to Jesus, some of them just wanted bread and fish. That's all they wanted. They just wanted food, and he was willing to give it. But he said, you know what? There's a whole lot more. If you would eat my flesh and drink my blood, you would live forever. But you got the fish and the bread. Hope you're happy. You know, um, Jesus was willing to meet people where where their need was. And he hoped that it would stir up in them a longing for more. And as counselors, we have to meet people where they feel their need. And... um, and help them to stay focused. Inconsistency is another thing we struggle with sometimes as a counselor. Um, uh, our, the skill that we give is caring direction. We want to be able to give them uh, really tangible direction to encourage them to do things that we know will put them in the flow of grace, whether it's attending a worship service or signing up for a Bible study or journaling, whatever it is, to give them a clearly defined rationale and goals they won't always understand why you're asking them to do what they're doing. Remember the movie Karate Kid? Um, I liked it. They, there's a more recent one, but the old one back in the 80s was uh, Mr. Miyagi and uh, the Karate Kid. And um, the kid wanted to learn what, the, what Mr. Miyagi knew about martial arts. And those of you who, who saw the movie know that, that Mr. Miyagi agrees to teach him if the kid will agree to do whatever he asks. Um, so the kid goes, okay, fine, sure. So the first thing he has him do is wax on, wax off. He has all these cars. He has to wax on, wax off. One hand with wax on, the other hand wax off. Then he has to um, sand the floor. Then sand the floor, sand the floor. And then he has to paint the, fa- paint the house. And so um, at a certain point, Mr. Miyagi's going off to fish, and, and the karate kid is up painting the house. And he goes, see you later. And the kid goes, what are you doing? You know, I'm sick of this, you know, and... He just goes off on him and says, I'm sick of being your slave and blah, blah, blah. So he's ready to walk out on it. Mr. Miyagi says, remember our agreement. And he says, show me, wax on, wax off. And he gets the kid to do the movements. And, and I, won't, uh, I may show the clip sometime. But it, it's kind of a cool thing because the kid realizes that in, in wax on, wax off and sand the floor and paint the, paint the wall that he's learned some disciplines and some movements that really equip him to do what he wants to do, which is to be able to to defend himself, to be able to live a life without being threatened by harm. And so so much of what we ask our our counselees to do is going to seem a little strange to them at the beginning, but if they adopt that yieldedness, then they will learn the why behind it. The shift is in leading rather than just following or containing. We followed their lead in the beginning. We contained them. But now in this phase of counseling, in the course correction phase, we need to be willing to offer some clear direction. So um, the final phase of this developmental framework is we're calling pursuit. Um, in the counseling setting, um, it's, uh, con- we're calling it conviction. 
It's where we encourage what we're teaching or training to go deep in the person that they internalize and incorporate. The beatitude we said is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Or happy are you who are energized by doing good. You will feel full and fulfilled. The struggle for all of us in engaging life from an adult perspective is cowardice. It's unbelief. It's being unwilling to step outside our comfort zone, to set aside self-protection in favor of faith, and, and to, to risk failure, to step out of legalism. Because legalism gives us the comfort of feeling like we're right. Even if we're miserable, there's some comfort in feeling like I'm better than other people. But the, the life of faith is a life of risk. Um, it, in this beatitude, we set aside our knee-jerk responses. We abstain from the things that give us immediate comfort in favor of something that is more enduring, that's more anchored into our values and our convictions. Um, we need to be willing to launch, to get, to, to get in the boat, to, step, to get on the plane, to overcome our fears and step in a new possibility that will free us up to live life to the full. The Bible talks about setting your affections on things above. Um, in, in our humanity, we identify with our human parents in order to follow them uh, in, in the path of maturity. In our spiritual walk, we identify with Christ. Uh, we identify with God as our Father, and it empowers us to live life to the full. For the, the counselor at this stage, the beatitude that goes along with what we're asking of you is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, happy are you who do right, even when it costs you dearly, because in losing you gain. If you think about a parent who is launching their child, it's almost like losing an arm when you send your child off into the world. Because you, as, especially you moms, have invested so much of yourself in this child that you want to go with them to college. You want to be with them. You want to continue to provide that nurturing and support. And as counselors, in the same way, you kind of want to keep hanging out with this person because it's so gratifying. But we've got to realize that we've got to launch them. As, the scripture, as John the Baptist said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And so this stage of counseling is about you letting go, about um, not needing to be needed. You, be, you need to become unnecessary in the person's life that they internalize what they've learned from you so that they don't need you anymore. Um, Staying in your comfort and self-protection wants wants you to keep them hooked on. But but, sometimes what we want to do as parents or as counselors is to let those that we love off the hook. When they're uh, afraid of trying something, we're like, oh, it's okay, you don't have to do that. No, as, as healthy counselors or parents, we want to push people into the uncertainty, into the struggle of growth. Um, and resist having the answer. We want to resist being right. We want to put the responsibility squarely on their shoulders. We've given them direction. Now it's their turn. And they'll come in and they'll go like, what should I do? And like, I think you know what you need to do. But, but, but uh, you tell me. Mm, no, not going to tell you. I think you know what you need to do. But I'd feel so much better if you would tell me. Like, sorry. Got to come from in you. Because ultimately... What we want for every person that comes into our sphere is that they experience the presence of the living Christ, the presence of the counsel and comfort of the Holy Spirit day by day, moment by moment, that they have some internal focus and locus of control that they can depend on. Not that they won't seek godly counsel, but at the end of the day, what they respond to is the voice of God within. One of the things I often get uh, clients to do is to write a letter to God especially when they're in the confession stage and getting it all out. But when they get to this place where they're trying to figure out their course, a lot of times I'll have them write a letter from God to them. And to sit down when they can be quiet and alone and just, say, just write down, what would God say to you in this moment in your life if he were to write you a letter? Imagine what he would say. And very often it's, it's really astounding what comes out. But if people hear from God, that's what empowers them. That's what infuses them with courage and the conviction to launch out, to step into their life in a way that will allow them to experience the abundant life that Jesus promised. We release them into their life and release them to God. Um, and I'm going to skip that last thing about the playing fair because I think we'll, we'll get into that in another session. Okay, um, it's just a few minutes after 3. We're stopping at 3.30. So um, I'm going like, to take out like a three or four minute break just so you can stand up, um, get
Go get something to drink or go to the bathroom if you need to. And then we're going to have our final session. If you have any question that you want me to uh, answer it to, with a group before we wrap it up, bring it to me now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are for, yeah, good. Um, there's been a question about the chapter numbers on the course outline. Those correspond to the book, Christian Counseling, that's edited by Gary Collins. It's a big old fat book. We have it in the, in the uh, uh, bookstore here for $29.99, I think. Um, it is not required reading. It's not required that you purchase it, but it will flesh out a lot of what we're talking about and help you expand your knowledge there at the, on that uh, course schedule. It gives you the chapter numbers for each, that are appropriate for each week. Again, that's optional.